I wrote the book, which is about uh, the development of attitudes towards capitalism in the world between 1860 and 1914, mainly because I was interested in the origins of the modern phenomenon of globalization. Um, of course, globalization is ancient. Religions have been global, trade has been global, and so on. But the kind of globalization between 1860 and 1914 is an economic one. It's really about the development of capitalism and industry. And I chose 1860 because that is a period where virtually all the elites had accepted the necessity of industrialization. You had uh, the, the liberals, who were, of course, the most pro-capitalist group uh, in, the, in the West. Then you had uh, the socialists, uh, who didn't particularly like capitalism, but they thought it was the necessary stepping stone for a socialist society. And then you had those I call the reactionaries, which is those who did not want capitalism in the first place, that for a long time wanted to go back to a pre-capitalist period, and by then had given up. And so all they did was to try to slow down the process of industrialization. And then the, I, the title, The Anxious Triumph, is that it's a triumph because clearly capitalism wins in those, it's still winning in, in those years. But it's also anxious because capitalism causes anxieties and causes anxieties in a new way. In pre-capitalist societies, people were anxious for things which were external to their society. They were anxious because there was too much rain or not enough rain or too much sun or not enough sun because there would be the pestilence, the black death or wars, invasions. These are all things that came from outside. Whereas with capitalism, it is in the nature of the system itself. It is dynamic, it moves, it destroys things, it innovates. Technologies which were great one year disappear after 5, 10, 15 years. Um, if you are employed, you are afraid of becoming unemployed. If you are a successful businessman, you might lose your business. So it's part of the nature of the system itself that makes it unstable. So anxious and triumph, and we still live in this era of uh, uh, anxiety and, and, of, uh, and of triumph. Although many uh, liberal-minded thinkers think that the state is an impediment to capitalism, but actually it's completely false. The book takes a clear stance that the state is a necessary instrument for keeping capitalists at bay, because it's, it's about competition. Competition must be regulated somehow. Not only that, but because of the anxieties that capitalism causes, what the state does, it tries to do something about that by creating a national community, by saying we're all in it together. And this can be done in different ways, according to the kind of state it is and how wealthy it is. So you can have welfare reforms, for instance, which do start in Denmark, in Germany, towards the end of the 19th century, and then go on in Britain with the liberal government of 1906. Um, and uh, these are, okay, these are welfare reforms. But also you need to regulate uh, the labor market. You need to establish how many hours people can work, what is, when do they retire, they retire at all, and, and, and so on. This is in order to make it into a playing level field for the, for the capitalists themselves. And here, the Victorians were very much the pioneers in this, uh, uh, in, in establishing a regulation. But then there, is a, there are other ways of establishing a national community. Um, one is by involving more people in it. So it's a great era of uh, in, an increase in the suffrage. 
1867 in Britain, but in, in France in 1870 you already have universal male suffrage and of course in Germany, in the new Germany you have universal male suffrage uh, as well. Or you can have nationalism, which means we are all together against them. Um, and so it's a great era of nationalism and this nationalism can be reinforced by colonialism. We are going to show other people that we have a civilizing mission. Um, I mean, this is the excuse for the establishment of colonies. So it's the, the great empires, mainly the British and the French, by far the biggest empires, and other countries trying to establish an empire, not very successfully, the Germans and the Italians, um, but that's because they arrived late and so there's not much left, as it were, to colonize. So you have all that, and I try to describe uh, all these, uh, these various things. I should also add that um, there's a sort of strange connection about in the, in the 1860s, at the beginning of my period, you have uh, a rather extraordinary set of circumstances, which means that you have the formation of the Italian state in 1861, the formation of a German state in 1860, the uh, emancipation of the serfs in Russia, which is seen there as a precondition for capitalist growth. You have a civil war in America, 1861-1865, which eliminates slavery and enables the North to industrialize more rapidly. And in Japan, in 1868, you have the Meiji Restoration. And the Meiji Restoration is an, an attempt to, to modernize Japan, to ensure that Japan does not become a colony or a semi-colony the way China has become. So it's a period of enormous and rapid changes, uh, uh, not just in Europe, but throughout the world. And my book tries to include also failed attempts at industrialization, be it in the Ottoman Empire or in China, with serious consequences for those countries in the 20th century. What actually is the basis of a success of capitalism is the creation of a consumer society. Um, in, uh, when I started in 1860, you could say that 80% really were losers in the capitalist system and 20% uh, gained. Um, by now, it's probably the other way around. 80% are the beneficiaries and 20% are the losers. Um, the creation of a consumer society, even more than democracy or, or the expansion of the suffrage, or that, is a real basis of the legitimacy of capitalism. And we all know that part of the consumer society is that we are never satisfied. Um, and if we were all satisfied, capitalism would collapse. It's good that we think we need something new. Um, television yesterday, the video recorders, uh, eventually the computer, uh, the iPad, and, and who knows what's going to happen in, in the next 10 or, or 15 years. So the problem, and this was my conclusion for capitalism, is that it is very difficult to imagine this constant increase in consumption at world level, um, given all the threats uh, to the environment and global warming and, and all that. The success of capitalism, in a way, may endanger its very existence. Can we really imagine a situation in which all the Chinese um, and all the Indians, that's 2.5 billion people, uh, you know, it's a third of humanity, uh, having the kind of standard of living that the average Californian has with 
you know, central heating in winter and air conditioning and, you know, cars and, door and all the, the rest of it, um, without the whole planet uh, going, going funny. So even though the Marxists thought that the internal contradiction of capitalism would be the class struggle between the working class and the capitalists, in fact, uh, the real threat to the system, it's his success. Namely, the, the, it would be very difficult for us in, in the West to tell the Chinese, sorry, um, you should go back to the good old days of Mao and all wear the same clothes and, um, you know, work in, in the fields. So that, that is basically my conclusion.